0: Hello and welcome to Long Story Short, the podcast from Arcadis UK, in which we explore the future of our cities. I'm Emma Nelson and we have a special edition for you this time to coincide with the launch of Arcadis UK's latest report. It's called Livable Places and it looks at what makes a great place to live, work and play.
1: Someone that's got a great curry house, obviously, that's the number one priority. Maybe a bit of green space so I can get out and exercise.
0: In front of a live audience, we'll look at what's important and how to make it work. We'll explore five themes around community, funding, design, collaboration, and sustainability. And we'll
2: ask who can make it happen. I think our conversation's been a bit too nice so far. It's all been
3: a bit cuddly. Let's be riskier for social benefit.
0: That's all ahead on Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. And a very warm welcome to St Luke's, a converted church in the heart of London, usually the location of the London Symphony Orchestra's rehearsals and smaller concerts. Tonight, my guests, I hope, will be making a different kind of music, but no less harmonious. (laughs) Um, Our panel, Peter Hogg is Arcadis UK Cities Director. He's closely involved in their work on placemaking. Kat Hannah is an urbanist and researcher. She's currently a master plan strategist for the Euston project at Lendlease. Uh, Claire Wood is Chief Executive of Reform Heritage based up in Staffordshire. They restore old buildings at risk of decay and demolition. We're bringing it back to its old use or finding a new life for it will benefit the local community. And Andrew Tuck is the editor of Monocle magazine. He presents The Urbanist, a weekly podcast on creating more interesting places to call home. He's also behind the book, The Monocle Guide to Making Better Cities. Your panel. So before this evening, there's been quite a lot of talk at Arcadis ahead of their new report on livable Places about what placemaking really is. More often than not, it's to do with people, but is placemaking currently a genuine part of the way that we're doing our planning, designing and building? Or is placemaking still comparable to Winston Churchill's view on adding vermouth to a gin martini? Briefly glance in its direction but enjoy an otherwise pure and strong double measure of meeting the budget. So, first question to Peter. What's the one thing that makes a great place for you?
4: I think it really does have to be all about people, the difference that it's made to people's lives.
3: Claire, how about you? What's a, what makes a good place for you? You know you've got a good place if you've got a place that people want to care for and you have to create the quality for it to be worth caring for.
0: Andrew, one good thing that makes a great place.
1: Softer sides of urbanism, the way that a park is built, the way that the the, the, the streetscape is, that's the thing that makes people feel a bit of serendipity in a way that makes you feel connected.
2: And CAD. One great phrase I've heard used before is thinking often about children and are you seeing children around and the idea that actually they tend to be the kind of indicator species you know if this is the place where parents are happy to take their children or even young people voluntarily want to go then it's a sign that you're getting something right
0: the word placemaking is something that we only ever hear within urbanism circles i mean i asked a few people what do you think placemaking is and People were genuinely surprised that we need a separate set of ideas to make sure that people are factored into the equation. Kat, maybe you could answer this. When was it that we stopped building houses and started to deliver units?
2: Probably when we got a housing crisis um, and we became more focused on delivering those units. I think we all know you can have development that takes place that is devoid of any sense of place as an outcome, and we've all probably been to some of those places Similarly, you can have placemaking that happens without there actually really needing to be any new development. You know, there's this idea you can actually retrofit placemaking. People can make their own places. Actually, often you might not even need anyone like me or a developer to go anywhere near somewhere to get a great placemaking outcome.
0: Andrew, who does it well who hasn't got it lost?
1: you rock up with somewhere like Copenhagen and the number of people in the city and the ambition and there's a, a slightly homogenous uh, desire about the direction of travel. So then it's easy to de- deliver good change. And you, and you see that in the housing stock and the, the public realm that's built and the way that the street functions. We also have an office in Zurich, and I just went to see uh, a setup there called uh, Mehr als Wohnen, which means more than living, a great cooperative setup. And they have the advantage because so many people in Swiss cities are parts of cooperatives. Even though they said they struggle to get more than 20% of the people within that cooperative to participate in that conversation. So, this outreach of bringing people in the community is great, but I always worry a little bit that. You always bring in the same small group of people, the loudest group of people, and actually making it about a community and getting their involvement is very difficult, so challenges everywhere.
0: Tell us a little bit more, Peter, about how you manage to connect with a community without imposing an external will. I don't know about you, but when people have wanted to change the shape of where I live, there's generally a meeting either in a pub or a bar, and then a group of People walk in with a laptop and they say that they're going to have a consultation and it will be all be wonderful, and then that's the last we ever hear from them, and then the building starts. It, it There's a disconnect, isn't there?
4: When the placemaking bus rolls into town and everybody gets off and starts doing the work of community engagement and outreach, um, there is going to be suspicion and, and, and a couple of town hall meetings in a sort of drafty community centre, sort of at an inconvenient time in the evening, isn't going to overcome that. It's how you continue that engagement and make it authentic and make it genuine and get to the point where you've built a level of trust where you can have, at times, some really challenging and difficult conversations with people.
0: Let's bring in Claire on this, because this is what you do for a living, it isn't it, absolutely Claire? I mean, do we have this issue of people being questioning, suspicious, and sometimes on the occasion hostile? Or are some people rather glad that
3: someone's paid them some attention? Um, well, if, you know, a group of people turn up with their suits on and everyone goes, what the hell do you want? Um, you can totally understand it you can absolutely see it which is why um we're very much about that long-term commitment to a community so we, we work in different communities around the country but it's absolutely for the long term as far as i'm concerned it's forever and the point being that we've got to create that trust and it's almost the other way around it's not me proving that i can i'm trustworthy it's us proving to that community that we care for it as much as the people there care for it. And as part of the sort of preparation for this report, I was at the the Birmingham discussion, and somebody made an offhand comment of, oh, this is like a kicking off meeting. And my gut instinct was, please never let this be like a kicking off meeting, because a kicking off meeting needs to have, you know, all the people from the 12-year-old in their tracksuit to the 87-year-old, to everybody, and the person who moved there six months ago, and the person that's lived there for 50 years, that's the kicking-off meeting. Kat, does that always happen? Do you always have
0: the kid in the tracksuit right through to Grandma?
3: When you start looking at very large,
2: long-term, infrastructure-led regeneration, a lot of people seem to say, you know, actually, I I haven't really got the time to think about what I want this place to be like in 20 years' time. I'm actually more concerned about you know, my job and my family and what's happening next weekend.
1: Just one tiny example, we went to Aarhus in Denmark where they're redeveloping their Docklands and they went there and they realized, okay, let's map everybody who's here in the beginning. We will make sure we have conversations with all those people. They went to the extreme. They realized that lots of people went there to take drugs at night. They even included those people in the, con- in the conversation, and they ma- made a, a health centre where they could get a needle exchange. And they said to the community, OK, you can come into this space, but let's remember the skateboarders were here first, these people need their assistance as well, and they don't have to come up to every meeting, but we will map these people into the community, and they will be involved as we go along.
0: OK, well, let's move on to uh, this wonderful report um, called Livable Places. Uh, Peter, can I ask you first, I mean... Why was it that you chose to divide the ideas into these, into these five elements?
4: This report was a, a year in its gestation because we genuinely wanted to engage with a very wide range of people. And when we started boiling it down to what are the things that really matter, we kept coming back to these, these, these five buckets, if you will, or these five planets in your solar system. I like
0: the idea of buckets. Claire, tell us a little bit more about what you thought of this report. Because the way that you're... I mean, we're based in London. We're sitting in a beautiful repurposed building, which is a cultural hub and has revived parts of this area or has been part of the revival of an area. Um, But your needs are very, very different, aren't they? I mean, some people might say, well, am I going to need a space to charge my electric car? The people who you work with they're probably not that bothered about this, they just want something a little bit more
3: fundamental. Absolutely, Um, and that's right. So, Reform Heritage, our our largest site, is Middleport Pottery in Stoke-on-Trent. And that's sitting within a ward where you've got um, numbers of children living in poverty at twice the national average. Everyday problems are big. You know, if you're ill, if you're hungry, if you're worried about your children being on the street because of the risk of grooming, Right, I feel really strongly that we need to demonstrate that we care for this place. So we do that through our heritage buildings and we demonstrate it through regenerating those buildings but finding ways for that community to then engage with that site and that building. So whether that's volunteering, whether that's you know, community events, whether that's the creation and the saving of jobs that people in that community do, um, that's really important.
0: So we hear about this idea of the long term but Often we hear accusations that the UK is very victim of of short-termism. Andrew, what are your thoughts about that? Are we too much in a rush here in the United Kingdom to solve this desperate housing crisis that we're going to forget, actually, that there might be some other problems throwing themselves up in a couple of decades?
1: We need to be in a reasonable rush. There's a, a lot of people who need homes and need them reasonably fast. But, as you say, we have to be careful that what we put up is flexible and changeable, that many of the buildings we're putting up still have the same templates that you'd have put up 30, 40 years ago. And actually, the way we live together, the way that we work, has changed really rapidly just in the last few years. You walk around here, every lobby of every building seems to be converted into a space for co-working. Those people don't want to be in traditional office space. What does that mean for developers? You can't guess what's gonna happen in 10, 20 years, but that idea that all buildings should be able to adapt and change and move with people is important as well.
2: I think our conversation has been a bit too nice so far. It's all been a bit cuddly. And one of the things that, you know, talking about long-term is actually how much you respond to needs in the current term, and then actually make sure you're not then precluding what you might then need later on in the longer term. So we know often when you speak to residents, Not so much in central London, but often what the residents want. What's the most important thing they want to talk to you about when you're doing redevelopment? Any guesses? Car parking, exactly. Um, What's the thing we often want to lead with as our really positive story when we're talking about redevelopment? Sustainability. So already you're getting into, you know, or are we going to have autonomous vehicles where we surely we won't actually even need parking? So you're getting into, again, how do I balance what people are feeling is their absolute immediate need with where we want to get people in the longer-term future as well. So, you know, there are trade-offs to be had. You do have to bring people with you.
0: There is always a budget. There is always a requirement either to maximise profit or to minimise cost. And sometimes placemaking becomes that thing that goes in the planning application. And then sometimes it kind of falls away later on. Uh, Claire, what are your thoughts about that? Because you're in an area of, of the United Kingdom where it often has to shout really loudly for money.
3: Yeah. Um, both having to shout loudly for money. And, you know, I, I give you a good example. Stoke has just, uh, in the last few months, secured £5 million of Housing Infrastructure Fund money in order to incentivise development because the situation is, is that dreadful. Um, talking to one of those developers, talking about the type of houses that were going to be built, etc., And we came to a discussion which was, this is going to be your absolute basic house. And my instinct was, hang on a second, if there is a community and a group of people who need, you know, green sustainability, who need a more efficient house, who need all of these technologies that we have, they're right here. Actually, this is not the community to build your standard house. This is the community to build your exemplar. Make these people's lives easier other people are in better situations and can afford to some degree to manage that themselves and as a developer
0: cat you have to and as but as a researcher first and foremost you're in an area of the world where money does talk extremely loudly how difficult is it for you to say actually we need to make this a good place for people to live work play
2: travel you can see the financial model that is often behind development reflected in the quality of the development that has been delivered. So if you are looking often at a house building model that is very much built on, let's get them built, let's sell them, let's leave and move on to the next project, we're often not gonna get the best quality products because it's not really in the interest but people know they're gonna sell those homes or units is not really in their interest to worry overly, actually, have we got the schools? Have we got the green space we need? Actually, there had been no real consideration given to the kind of social infrastructure that you need to turn something from a collection of units into an actual place. So you need to get those fundamentals of place right. Because one, you're going to need people to actually continue to lease space there. But you're going to need that place to really stand the test of time. So
0: let's throw ourselves ahead a couple of decades, 20, 30 years. Um, Andrew, who can be the Greta Thunberg in all this, who, who holds everybody's feet to the fire and says, okay, pacemaking is fantastic, make it happen.
1: Well, for me, the Greta Thunbergs are, are probably the kids of these people sitting in this room and the people sitting in this room, they can make all that change. That, those, those are the people who want to leave some legacy. I was in Canada, I sat next to, in a dinner next to a guy who's a big developer in Canada and I always think it's amazing if you're in that role that, God, when you're not on this earth, you can think you've left something that's changed your city, your skyline, your community for the better. And I said to him, you know, how amazing the legacy you'll have. And he said, I'll be honest with you, the legacy I want to leave is wealth for my three children. And I was like quizzing him a bit more. And he said, let me stop you. Let me assure you that the average person cannot tell the difference between a dollar brick and a three dollar brick. And that, unfortunately, is still how some people see value engineering around the kinds of housing that people like your community get to live in. And until we challenge that and say, that has to change, and that's in the report, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a harder thing to, to, to put a, a price on. But beauty, uh, quality build, that makes community, that makes you feel a sense of ownership and belonging.
0: Claire, are you the kind of Greta Thunberg of Stoke? Sorting people out, telling them to panic, telling them that they need to regenerate, rebuild, reinvest in order to make a place thrive.
3: I hope that what I can be is a mechanism, an instrument to encourage people who live in Stoke to be more demanding. That's what I really want to see. And, you know, your question of who holds the feet to the fire. Everybody in those communities should be going to those developers going, sorry, not good enough, not having it, not moving in. The other thing I think that has
2: been probably slightly underplayed this evening is climate change. Um, You know, we are going to have, and we're seeing it now, a huge amount of targets to meet. And for us to sit in a room here is a room full of quite a few developers and not feel that massive obligation, given the amount of carbon that we produce as an industry, which is huge. And we are going to have that question of when we're not hitting those targets, who's going to be accountable? Is it the architect? Is it the engineer? Is it the developer? Is it the occupiers who kept all the windows open and didn't use the air conditioning sufficiently? You know, who is it that is going to be held accountable for that? I would never align myself with Greta Thunberg for many reasons um, in that I couldn't possibly put myself on a pedestal with her. But it is about thinking, you know, how can we actually start thinking long-term like that and realising... We can talk about the aesthetics and how important community is, but actually the sustainability point is going to be hugely important.
0: So is there anybody here who has a question or a comment? Um, If you would care to raise your hand and then give us your question. So I'm Anusha Shah, I'm uh, from Arcadis, uh, Director for Resilient Cities.
2: I didn't hear the word inclusive and inclusive design. So what what are your views about it? There is a reason we have a world that is designed for generally able-bodied white men. It's because we have a world that was designed by able-bodied white men. So the first part of it hugely has to be actually changing the demographics of who is actually doing a lot of this designing. And we, you know, we're getting hugely better as an industry. You know, I, think I, you know, I do want to be positive about that. It doesn't mean we don't have some way to go. You know, at Houston, we're talking to an organization in Camden who works specifically thinking about how, for autistic people, they're affected by different aspects of the built environment. Andrew, inclusive design.
1: Well, most developers are still building one, two, three bedroom apartments. That's the, the template, and that's, and that's how it works. Again, I'll go back to this project I was talking about, Mayor Alsfernan. What was interesting when they built that, they gave people who were going to live there lots of options about how they could live. And one of the options was that, in fact, you wouldn't have so much of your own social space, you wouldn't have your own living room or kitchen, that there would be a communal option. And lots of people voted for their parts of the building to be built around that. So, for example, you get ten single parents would say, I would like to live in a space where the kids can play together, they're safe in the evening. And one other the tiny thing is, again, when you go to the Nordic regions, again and again and again they're looking at how do you marry in the same places, young, old, all ages, to share knowledge And that's the bit that we still haven't quite worked out here. Here you get it in London, but it's a kind of a a kind of hipster thing to do that. You know, you've got a shared kitchen for a year and then you're off. But how do you make that a real thing that you think this is my life?
2: And I think that to join all that up, there's also an equity point. You know, we know people most affected by air pollution are typically those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. The amount of people I hear now saying, oh, the air pollution in London is getting terrible. I must move to Norfolk. That's fantastic for you, but you're leaving a hell of a lot of people behind and you're happy to still build houses for them, but actually, what are you doing to improve that air quality? So there is that you know, equity you know, impact.
0: Peter, how do you get your developers or the people you're living with to have that sense of social responsibility?
4: So what, what it's important to do is to find the ways in which you can demonstrate actually you know, What what is what is the real value and benefit of doing that? So I'll give I'll give you a real world example of this. I happen to be a community governor at a at a primary school in Camden, which is right bang on a main road. And cat, it'll be one that if you haven't I was already, i to say you, what school is it? Montfort <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it. Yeah. You'll be you'll be engaging with it. Um, yeah. You know, there is a direct correlation to be made between um, someone making a commitment to um, doing things that will improve the air quality for the children at that school, and better educational and therefore life outcomes for those children that will have a long-term financial and economic and social benefit to that community. And I think one of the things that's incumbent on organisations like us is to make that link between you do those things and these are the benefits that will be delivered. So that's not just a piece of altruism. that's That's a cool, smart investment.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Well, finally, I did ask you for a little fix. Something our audience can take away and use. So no need for big thinking stuff. Little changes. Who wants to go first? Who's ready? Andrew, you smiled.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. Um, The thing that makes place for me are the tiny things that people do that indicate there is social trust in the neighbourhood. It's the woman who dares to put the potted plants out in the street and put some flowers around the base of a tree... And they don't get trampled on. They're there throughout the summer. In all the placemaking you do, these are the things that are very difficult to encourage, but they are signs that people trust the people around them, believe in the people around them, and want to engage.
2: Kat, you're fixed. Don't just keep doing things because how they've always been done. You know, if you're given, you know, these are the targets you need to hit, this is the policy framework you need, these are the numbers you need actually think well what if we could do it better um, and actually just thinking beyond that kind of business as usual particularly again when it comes I think to sustainability or also to think about the impact on the community as well. Peter?
4: Try and make sure that the place you create is really really flexible and I'll give you an example of that. One of the greatest pieces of placemaking that I can think of is right here in this city in London it's, 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 it's Trafalgar Square and many of you may remember. Um, I don't
2: feel the same, people may have just realised oh, Bear it, with me, bear with you, bear I with think you. it's one of the worst maintained
4: <laughs> T Tw- 20, Twenty years ago, um, Trafalgar Square was a godforsaken hellhole. It was full of stagnant ponds and pigeon guano, and people scurried across it as quickly as they could to get somewhere else. It's now, uh, potentially, um, a, a lively, flexible, adaptive event space and public realm. Has that made
0: you fall in love with Trafalgar Square Cat?
2: Not quite, but I do think the point about, you know, they didn't overthink it. Perhaps, you know, they could have thought it a bit more, but I do think it has led to a degree of flexibility, so I will agree
3: on that point. Claire, round it off with your top tip for the evening. Um, I suppose what I, my wish would be a little less mitigating of risk. Let's be riskier for social benefit. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Well, that's all we have time for. I'm afraid the warmest of thanks to my guests, Peter Hogg, Kat Hannah, Andrew Tuck and Claire Wood. My thanks to everyone who's joined us here in the audience at St Luke's here in London. And thank you for joining us. Goodbye. If you want to read more about Arcadis' report on livable places, then head to our website, arcadis.com slash unitedkingdom. Alternatively, search Arcadis livable Places.